Hey everyone, this is Brian Ferguson. If you're listening to this, then I know you are enjoying the Bumps and Thumbs podcast. In order to continue to run the podcast and get guests on the show, we need support from people like you. Please go to anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-A-N dash Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, the number three, and click on the support button. Once you are there, you'll have options to select from to make a monthly contribution. Your support will help us get on wrestling stars that require financial compensation. Again, that's anchor.fm forward slash Brian, B-R-I-N dash Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, the number three, and click on the support button. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support and enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. My guest today is a returning guest, the historian of wrestling, if you will, and my good friend, and he's also the host, co-host of AWA Unleashed podcast with Chris Tubbs and Mick Karch. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce Mr. George Shire. George, thanks for coming back on. Hey, you know I always enjoy enjoy doing your show we've done a few of them and we as have. you said it's probably been too long so what the heck let's talk some old wrestling let's do it today all right so folks today we're gonna have a little bit different we're going totally ad lib at least on uh, my ad george is usually doesn't have anything I, I usually have a set of questions but today we're going totally ad lib i have nothing zilch zero right here prove it to you nothing on the paper we could end up talking about the artificial insemination of cows or something. I don't know. It'll be wrestling Yeah, It'll be wrestling related. So, George, you know, you're a well-known wrestling historian, wrestling guru, if you will. You know, let's talk a little about how this all kind of got started. So... We know a little bit about the NWA history. We talked about that before when it was formed in 1948. Let me ask you this. How are these territories formed? I mean, who, who established the boundaries of those territories back in the, in the day? And, 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 you know, what was kind of the unwritten rules of that stuff? Well, I think you touched on it right there when you said the unwritten rules or guidelines. Uh, you know, back in the day when, when the NWA was formed in 1948, that was only because of the many territories that existed out there that were run and basically all of them independently of one another. Hmm. Each of the promoters a lot of times would recognize somebody as the world champion or, you know, and, and we had multiple world champions at the time with no basis for how they got the title or why they were recognized, you know, usually no story given. So when that NWA formula came about, it was, it was a conglomerate of promoters. And, you know, we've talked about some of them in the past guys like Pinky George and Sam Muchnick and Wally Carbo and uh, Tony Stecker. And uh, I'm leaving off some of them. There, There were a couple more. Mm-hmm. They decided that they would sit down and come together with, we will create an alliance that will allow us to recognize one champion. And then all of the different territories, each promoter could have that champion come into their territory mm-hmm. one or two times a year. And these promoters would pay what they would call dues because they they sort of formed a club. The National Wrestling Alliance was was a club, yeah. but it was an agreement that they decided we will recognize a man as our world champion mm-hmm. and we will share that man. And each year we will get together, this group of promoters, they will get together and they will have a meeting and, and decide if they want to keep that guy as the champion or they want to come up with someone new. And a lot of the, whether they keep that guy or not was based on how he was drawing, 
you know, how he did in certain parts of the country. Uh, was he was he drawing money? Yeah. And we all know that in the beginning they went with Luthes. Right. And and Lou was a, a bona fide draw at the gate. So most of the promoters were happy with that situation. And with each of these territories, then it was also the agreement. That's the unwritten part that I won't go into your city or cities, whatever little section you promoted in, and you won't come into my city or little territory that I promote in. Meaning we can share talent maybe from time to time, mm -hmm. but you won't come in and promote a card in my backyard, nor will I go into your backyard and promote a card. And that's where that un unwritten agreement really came about. And it was, it was honored. It was a, a handshake. And as you talk to the old school wrestlers and promoters, they'll tell you that that's how wrestling went yeah. from 1948 up until, oh, let me say there were times, yes, there were times when there would be an outlaw promotion that would come along. Yeah. Some guy thinking, well, I'm not going to honor this or I'm not a member of the NWA and I'm going to go ahead and promote in your city. When those little incidents happen, then all of the NWA promoters that belong to this club, they would throw in their best talent for the city that this outlaw promoter was coming into, and they would promote a mega card. Yeah. And you'd have, because basically they were going to fight him off and they would usually win. They always won. So the outlaw promoter would have one or two or three cards, maybe, and he'd, he'd be out of business. He didn't draw any money. And he'd have funny names of wrestlers, you know, sometimes he'd bring in guys that were ripoffs of the real talent and try to fool the fans. And so at the end of the day, uh, the NWA national wrestling Alliance worked really well for the number of years that it was around. Yeah. Um, you know, you talk about outlaw promotions and we've, we've kind of touched a little bit on when the WWF started kind of, getting in there do you think in your personal opinion that Vince McMahon Jr. purposely just wanted to run these old guys out of business so he could just have it himself even though his old man at the time is when he was alive you know was part of that group was you know he honored that system even though Technically, they were a different brand, but they all honored that system. I mean, do you really, I mean, do you think he did it, you know, purposely because he just wanted to run them out of business or what's your take? Well, to, to answer the last part of your comment here, comment and question, no, I don't think that Vince McMahon was purposely in the beginning and i can't believe i'm even defending him on this <laughs> but <laughs> i don't think his initial thing was i am going to put everybody out of business i think it was more brian that vince mcmahon jr at the time was what back in 84 when he started this uh promotion invasion was i think he was like 33 or 34 years old so he was a young kid yeah. compared to a lot of the established promoters mm -hmm. that generally ran all these individual territories. You know, Vern Gagne in 1984 was, what, 58 years old? Yeah. And so, you know, he's pushing 60. And then you had, you know, obviously Muchnick and Dusick and Owens, Don Owen and Roy Shire and Eddie Graham and Fritz von Erich, you know, Paul Bosch. I mean, you just go around the country. Yeah. All these guys are upper 50s into their 60s. Yeah. So they had a different, you know, they were living under the old adage that it, it has worked all these years, the territorial system and the gentleman's agreement. And it's working. We're not going to change it. You know, it's not the old, it's not broke. We're not going to try to fix it. Yeah. Junior comes along, and let's point out that 
Vince Sr., he was a member of the National Wrestling Alliance up until um, it was into the 60s, well into the later 60s, when he withdrew and he started his own company or his own alliance, WWWF, mm-hmm. Worldwide Wrestling Federation in 1963. But right. he had still remained a member of the National Wrestling Alliance for a number of years after that. Then there was a spell in uh, where he wasn't part of it. And then in the early 70s or the mid-70s thereabouts, he actually became a member again. Yeah. But during that time, that when he, I think it was when uh, Pedro, it was when Pedro Morales was champion. Okay. Pedro could not be technically listed as the world champion because Vince Sr. was part of the National Wrestling Alliance. Oh. I'm not sure of the exact time period there, but there was that short period of time. Okay. So, Vince Sr., when he started, the only reason he started the WWWF is because at the time when when Buddy Rogers was the National Wrestling Alliance champion, Mm -hmm. Vince Sr. was the one that controlled Buddy's uh, bookings. He he, like much like he did Andre the Giant. Years later, he was the one that sent Andre out to the different promoters, rented him out so to speak. So yeah. the promoters would work through senior to get Andre. Well, that was the same thing, almost the same thing with Buddy Rogers when the NWA had made Rogers champion back in 1961. For the couple of years that he was champ, uh, a lot of NWA promoters were, I guess you'd say, complaining that they couldn't get the champion on okay. their dates or, or, you know, during the year. And senior was was controlling his bookings. So eventually he had that little rift and the NWA decided in 1963, we're going to get a hold of Luthez again and we're going to make him, we're going to ask him to take the title from Buddy. They, they, wanted, they wanted to get back control of their championship. Yeah. And of course that's where the rift started. So it was decided that Lou would beat Buddy Rogers. Buddy, uh, or Vince Sr. really didn't want to give up Buddy as the champion. Mm-hmm. So he pretty much decided, you know what? Lou's going to beat him for the NWA title. And Lou really did go into Buddy Rogers and tell him, we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way because I'm taking the belt tonight on their match. I mean, that's a true story. Yeah. Because Buddy wasn't excited about this. He liked that world champion yeah. status. But nonetheless, Lou took the title. And then what, what Vince did was he immediately, at that point, created, it was Capital Sports before that, and he created the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, proclaiming that Buddy Rogers was the champion. Mm-hmm. And he immediately then lost the title to Bruno San Martino. And the reason being there was Buddy had legitimately had some health scares with a heart issue. Yeah. And... And when he went in against Bruno on that, uh, what was it, May 17th of 63, um, it was it was a very short match. Yeah. That Bruno beat him simply because Buddy couldn't work a long match. He, he was coming out from the hospital almost. And it was decided that, and it also made Bruno look good and domineering at that point, gave the, you know, gave the WWWF, uh, recognition that my god he beat the the mighty nature boy you know yeah and what was it 30 some seconds or whatever. it was very short match, very yeah. short period of time i haven't written down what the it wasn't even a minute though i or even if it was it was just over a minute i mean right. it was short so that was the that was the reason there and then for a long time vince just didn't use nwa champions right so that's how that happened and I think they just, before that, they all, you know, with Vince Jr., did he deliberately try to put people out of business? That was an example, you know, it was just that old being in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Because in 84, we had just come off the the, the new concept of, uh, well, if you go back like 
to 76. We had closed circuit television that kind of was a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, Vince, Vince Sr. was one of the ones that along with, with the help of his son that helped promote the Muhammad Ali Antonio Anoki debacle as it is in hindsight. <laughs> yeah. Because it was a joke. Yeah. But on paper at the beginning, it was huge. Yeah. And they were going to show it at closed circuit arenas uh, around the country, which Vern Gagne, AWA, was part of that, as were other promotions. They put on mm-hmm. their own local card. Yeah. Vern worked out of Chicago. He had the Chicago card live. And a guy like me, I went to the St. Paul Auditorium, watched the, the event from Chicago and the feed from New York with oh. Ali and, and Anoki on closed circuit television. Wow. You know, we, we were there at the at the auditorium watching this huge TV screen. Cool. And that was the innovation. So Junior, I, I think it was a matter of he recognized we got some great possibilities here. And then with pay-per-view, he recognized that, you know, we could hold pay-per-view event mm-hmm. and draw a national audience. Now, the thing is, Brian, there were other guys that had kind of tinkled with the idea. You know, Ole Anderson was one of them. It wasn't that they didn't they didn't think it was possible. They just didn't know how to put it forward. Yeah. And again, Ole at that point was up in his years, too, for, for the generation. Right. So Vince Jr. comes in. He says, you know, I'm going to do this national thing. He wanted... It wasn't necessarily that he was going to start rating, at least I don't think so, that he was going to start raiding all the territories and he was going to dominate the world. He wanted to do a pay-per-view event, and he felt that the the poster child for that event was Hulk Hogan. And that's really where the idea started. He felt he had to get Hogan because of Hogan's national exposure at the time Mm -hmm. from the Rocky movie. Mm-hmm. where Hogan was Thunderlips in the movie. Yeah. And then Hogan became big in the AWA with Vern creating, and, and he was the responsible for Hulkamania. Yeah. So uh, Vince recognized that guy, and that's yeah. what he targeted. Yeah. And when he did this, then he come up with this idea, man, I could get Hogan, and I might get this guy, and I might get that guy. And you saw what happened. So eventually, maybe what started off is not intentional, before you knew it, he was hell-bent on, I'm going to take this guy from this territory, I'm going to take these guys from that territory, yeah. and I'm going to create this empire. Which he and did. The rest, yeah. And the rest is history. I want to go back in time a little bit more. Um, in, in the 50s, you know, uh, you mentioned Vern Gagne. Vern Gagne, uh, from my understanding, uh, was kind of pushed for a while to be the NWA world champion, but ran into some roadblocks along that path. Um, Why, if that's true, why was Vern blocked? He had such great talent. He had such charisma. Why was he not the ever, I know he's the junior heavyweight champion, but why wasn't he the world champion? heavyweight champion in the NWA in your mind? Well, it's in my mind. And it's also truth that, that I'll share with you. Uh, when, when Vern came onto the scene, we've talked about this. I mean, mm-hmm. this was at the, Vern was at the onset of television. When television in the late Vern started in 1949 on mm-hmm. May 10th, that was his first match or May 3rd. I'm sorry, May 3rd. Greg Gagne always says it's May 10th. It's May 3rd. May 3rd. Uh, May 3rd was his very first pro match. And if you go back to 1949, television was in its infancy at best. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people only had these little TV screens. And you had this, you had to warm the TV up. I mean, it was so bad. You had snow on them, you know, the fuzzy picture, and you had to have the antennas that you got to move ears. around to find <laughs> rabbit ears. Yeah. And uh, the key thing was, is that not everyone, we, and this is common knowledge, but not everyone in that era could afford a television set. 
they were a luxury. You know, and most cities only had, some, some cities only had two channels. We in, in Minnesota, we had four and five if you counted the PBS station that came later. But mm-hmm. we had five channels. You had the three networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have an independent station in the city, which basically was a, a, a station that would uh, just do local programming in that city and have little local personalities. That's all everyone had. But not everyone could afford a television. You know, I don't know if you remember when VCRs came out. I do. I was a little, I was about 10 or 11, but yeah, I remember. Okay. Well, it was around 1978, 77, 78. Mm-hmm. In that time frame, when a VCR first came out, oh my gosh, this was huge. Mm-hmm. And and the thing was, is I remember to get a VCR in those days. Now you're going back to 1978, so yeah. put this into 78 dollars. Yeah, you could buy a VCR, but it was going to cost you 1,500 dollars. That's a lot of money. Well, then as time progressed, you know, you could buy them for a hundred bucks or something. You know, as they advanced and so on, and then they, you know. What is a VCR today? Nobody even has them. But the bottom line was, is with television, there was, uh, there was really limited access for people to watch television. But those that had a TV set, wrestling, they found out quickly that wrestling was cheaper to, to produce. And they could put these guys from, you know, New York and California and these big, bigger cities on TV. And the, the local TV stations could put on Gorgeous George and Luthez and Killer Kowalski and Hans Schmidt and Vern Gagne. These were national guys. So when Vern started out, I mean, he had that amateur background. We all know about that. So he mm-hmm. transitioned to the pro side. But he brought that legitimacy to the business because he could wrestle. Mm-hmm. And Luthez was a wrestler. So when Vern, you know, a couple of years later in 51, Vern was doing a lot of traveling. He got the junior heavyweight title. Vern wasn't big as pro wrestlers went. Um, and in any era, he was about, Vern was about, uh, I don't know, people have said that he was just under six foot. I stood next to Vern back in the day many times. And, and uh, he was pretty much eye to eye with me. And I, and I, my license said I was six one back in the day, so you know, I don't know. Uh, I went to the doctor for my physical last week, and they told me I was just under five eleven. I said, "My God, it's happening! I'm shrinking." I don't know if that's true or not. But anyway, with Vern, um, they they did have a, a junior heavyweight division in the NWA, and Vern was a natural fit for it. So now you ask, why wasn't he given the NWA title? When you look at the draws around the country, and Vern traveled all over for the mm-hmm. NWA, and he wasn't just a Minnesota boy back then. It was right. funny because in the 50s, for Vern to come home and wrestle in Minneapolis, which was an NWA territory at the time, right. it was a big deal. Vern's coming home. We're going to have local boy Vern Gagne on our card. That was huge because yeah. he wasn't around. And he was traveling in Boston and Texas and Oklahoma and California. I mean, he was all Tampa, Atlanta, Vern wrestled all over. So why didn't he get the title? Well, number one, their usual comment was that he was a junior heavyweight and he wasn't big. If you looked at Vern and Lou together, standing side by side, Mm -hmm. Lou is here, Vern is here in height. There was a difference. So Lou was bigger. And perhaps that was their primary reason. I don't know. But here's what really it came down to. Lou and Vern respected each other an awful lot. Yeah. And in that respect comes the, I'm not going to put you over mentality. They just, they couldn't get. Now, when they wrestled, they were booked against each other a half a dozen times or more. I have their, their matches chronicled. Mm-hmm. And uh, in those days, Lou usually got the nod. I mean, he would get the victory, yeah. but he, Vern, for that fact alone, Lou was not going to put Vern over because Lou didn't want to admit that Vern maybe could be a better wrestler than he was. Okay. And, and few would argue that Lou was not as real a deal as there was. 
Lou was a wrestler pure through. And if he didn't want to lose to you, he wasn't going to lose to you. He would not let you beat him. He could hook, he could shoot. And so he was, and he drew well as National Wrestling Alliance champion for most of the 50s. Yeah. He had it up until, uh, oh, there was a break or two in there, but it was in 57 or, or 56. I, I might be off just a little bit without mm-hmm. looking. He had a, a time where he, he wanted to take a little rest, and they put the title on, on Whipper Billy Watson for a, a very short time, and Lou took it back. Yeah. And then when we got to 1957, um, Lou, Lou just went and said, I'd like to have a break. The schedule, it was the schedule. Even back then, it was, uh, and, and so much of it, you know, in the 50s was by car. Yeah, You didn't have the air travel accessibility or the ability back then. So Lou was traveling, you know, this California and going out to Atlanta and then all points in between. He wanted a break. But he wanted to pick his successor. That's how protected of he was of the NWA. Yeah. And so he picked Dick Hutton. Now, on the surface, Dick Hutton was a perfect choice. Dick was a great amateur wrestler. He uh, was a legit worker in the ring. He had a little showmanship to him that Lou didn't have, but... uh, that was, that was who Lou wanted to beat him. So mm-hmm. Hutton got the title. The problem with Hutton was that he wasn't as charismatic as Lou was or as much of a draw. Mm-hmm. And really at that point, wasn't as big of a national name. He didn't draw well. Mm-hmm. And it went two years, the NWA, much Nick and the rest of them, they said, you know, we're, we're having a hard time with this guy. He's not drawing when he comes to our towns. Mm-hmm. So we want to take the title off. So who are they going to give it to? Well, they went with a good choice. They went with Pat O'Connor. Now, the reason they didn't just say, well, maybe we should go with Vern Gagne was this was in 1959, and Vern was in the process of negotiating to buy the Minneapolis territory from Dennis Stecker, who was the son of Tony Stecker, who had been the original, but Tony had passed away a couple years earlier, a few years earlier. And Dennis, his son, was the promoter. Dennis and family wanted to sell the business. This was a, a, a prime spot for Vern. Yeah. And it was a good territory. A couple of other things were happening at the time. The uh, U.S. Justice Department, we've talked about this, had yeah. started investigation of the NWA as being a monopoly. And this was coming from rival promoters that were envious, jealous, and whatever. But in order to, at that point in time, to show that they were not a monopoly, it came at the right time where Vern was going to buy Minneapolis and whatever surrounding cities at the time that promoted and go out, basically go out of the NWA. And they could say, you know, that's where the AWA was formed. So at the time when Vern could have probably gotten the title, he was already kind of behind the scenes negotiating to get out of you know taking over minneapolis and maybe that played into it so he should have gotten it earlier but by the time it may have been the right time they had already went with o'connor and Vern started his own territory and then we know what happened there yeah how did i do on going to get to the end of the story see i love doing this you did fine george i love ask me a question and i give you the inaugural address I want to talk a little bit, uh, switch back a little bit to the WWWF. Uh, you know, they in 78, when Backlund won the title from, from Graham, superstar Billy Graham, a lot of people were kind of scratching their heads about it and how such a title run he had for almost, almost six years. You know, he had it from, what was it, February 78 till December of 83. You know, that was uh, Vince McMahon Sr.'s choice. But how do you how do you think that was? I mean, that was a long – I mean, I know back then champions were champions for at least a couple of years, most of the time, unless they were a transition champion. But that run, how, how do you think that went for, 
for them as far as Backland being the face of that organization at that time. Was that the right choice or do you think it should have been somebody else or? Well, it actually went, here's, here's really how it went. Um, You touched on the fact that normally the champions in the WWF, which they became in the early seventies, WWF, they dropped the W. So, and we know they're WWE today, but I'm just always going to refer to them as F because it's more, it's more natural for me. Okay. Um, When they went with Bruno, you gotta, you, you do have to remember that at that time frame, Bruno, again, another wrestler that was in the right place at the right time. The population in New York was always a huge Italian population and Puerto Rican champ or Puerto Rican uh, population. Mm -hmm. So in order to have the right champion, Bruno was the guy Mm -hmm. and he was, he was a natural, he was strong. He was charismatic in his, in his ability in the ring. He made the perfect champion. And Vince senior had this, had this idea that the champion always had to be a babyface. I'm not sure why, um, but he wanted a babyface champion. Mm-hmm. Now with Bruno, he went almost eight years during yeah. for his first reign, just short of eight years. And the key to his success was, is that he would wrestle. They would build up every single heel that came into the WWF and they would eventually get that showdown with, with Bruno mm-hmm. and the fans, the formula went well, Bruno sold out. It's documented that Bruno sold out Madison square garden every month that he appeared there all through the sixties. So why would you change Bruno at that point when he's your golden egg and he can always take care of the, the latest greatest bully that's going to stop him <laughs> and he wins. Well, when Bruno went to senior in 1970, the late late 1970 he went to him and he said i need a break bruno had a lot of little numerous aches and pains and the the travel on the east coast and he was wrestling regularly i mean he had a huge territory to work in Mm -hmm. madison square garden being the the big apple as they say but he went to senior and he said i really i need to take some time off we got a light i got to lighten my schedule i want to be with my family a little bit more Typical answers. Yeah. So he again said, I would like to choose my successor. Well, Vince wasn't going to go with a heel champion for long term. Now we're talking senior, Vince senior. Right. So he, uh, he, Bruno said, I would like to have Koloff take the title from me. Now you have to remember that Ivan Koloff had wrestled in the WWF for off and on for three or four years at that point. Mm-hmm. And Vin, or Bruno had beaten him many times as a challenger. Right. Um, I think there's even a match out there from 1967 that Bruno beat uh, Koloff on his debut in the territory. Oh, I wow. can look that up for you. <laughs> but when he was, when, when Koloff was still green, I mean, you know, green to the business. Right. But anyway, they were friends. Bruno trusted Koloff. He liked Koloff. You know, obviously they weren't friends in the ring to the fans right. and the KV. Right. Yeah. But he said, I'd like, I'd like Koloff to take the title. Well, Vince went along with it with the idea that we'll put it on, on Koloff, but then we're going to quickly give it to a baby face. And yeah. I, I personally have always questioned that decision, but it worked for how they did it. So who am I, you know? Um, so a couple of weeks after Koloff pulls this upset of the decade and the, the stories are true in Madison square garden, the night that Koloff won the title, only Koloff and Bruno and the referee obviously were in on this. And when Koloff got the pin over Bruno, the referee immediately told Koloff, get out of the ring. He never showcased it. He never paraded around the ring, you know, like jumping up and down. They got him out of there. Yeah. And when they announced that Bruno had lost the title, there was total silence. 
But the reason they got Koloff out of there was because they feared that there would be a riot because the fans just wouldn't accept Bruno losing. Right. So he, he was, he was taken out. Okay. Two weeks, whatever it is, two or three weeks go by. Pedro Morales at the time was the, um, I think they recognized him as the United States champion. Okay. And he was going to be the successor to Bruno uh, or over Koloff. So they had him win over Koloff that avenged that defeat of Bruno in the fans eyes. And, and it, that's the way Vince senior looked at it. Mm-hmm. And, Pedro was the champion until 73, a couple of years, uh, later 73, when uh, they realized that Bruno, even though he was a good draw, he wasn't as great a draw as Bruno was. Right. So they were again going to drop the title. They put it on Stan Stasiak for literally a coffee break. Yeah. And they had talked Bruno into coming back and taking the belt. For, for a while again. And of course, Bruno had his second reign. Mm-hmm. Well, now we got to the point where Bruno again, at this point still said, you know, I really, I, I can't, I don't want to do the schedule anymore. And I, I want, I'm doing this as a favor to Vince senior. Mm-hmm. So they come up with the idea of putting it on superstar Billy Graham. Now, what was ironic about that time period is Graham held it for, what, a year or so? Yeah, a year. Which, a year. Was, which was strange because they never wanted a heel champion. Mm-hmm. But Graham d- drew okay. But again, that mindset was is that we have to have a, a, a babyface champion. Yeah. Now, here's something a lot of people don't know. It's not that it's a secret. I mean, it's knowledgeable. It's knowledge out there, but lot, not everybody knows it. Uh, Vince Sr. called up. Sam Wichnick of the NWA. And he asked him, do you have, can you give me just an idea? Do you have a baby face that you would recommend if I were able to get him to come in here and be the champion? Well, at the time, Bob Backlund was a big star in the NWA. He had been in St. Louis a lot of times. Mm -hmm. He had that great amateur background. And Sam told him, he said, I'd recommend Bob Backlund. And I think it was simply because at the time, uh, the NWA wasn't prepared to put the title on Backlund themselves. It just wasn't the right time for them. Right. So he suggested using Bob Backlund. And Bob went out there. They put the title on him. Strangely enough, even though people, you know, you you questioned it when you asked me this. Mm-hmm. How did they go with Backlund? Backland wasn't their typical formula, Puerto Rican or Italian for the ethnic population on the East Coast, mm-hmm. but he drew well. He did draw well. Yeah. And here's the secret to his drawing. I'm not taking anything away from Backland's ability mm-hmm. or his, his uh, uh, talent at all, but he drew well because they put him against some awesome heel talent. Yeah. If you look at the challengers that Bob Backlund went against, you know, Killer Khan and Masked Superstar and Pat Patterson, uh, Sergeant Slaughter, uh, Koloff again, matches with Superstar Graham, and I'm leaving off, guys. Tor Kamada was in there. Uh, Bruiser Brody. Yeah. Yeah, Brody, I think got a shot um but just some some really killer heel talent now that's part of the draw and you could go back and say that was even the case for bruno and Mm -hmm. you know no doubt it helped to have this monster heel against you in the draw at the gate but backland drew well with it and backland you know he had that all-american boy persona at the time right right time in our history to have the all-american boy so he drew well for those almost five years or was it was a little over five years I think yeah, it was almost six yeah yeah five and a half years whatever it was but at that point in time now Vince senior had sold the company to his mm-hmm. son Vince senior was struggling with health issues we know he died you know later, shortly yeah. after he sold the company of the the cancer and uh junior had that idea but at that moment in time Bob Backlund was not the guy that Junior could go with for his 
is taking the business on a national pay-per-view type thing. And that's where Hogan comes in, where we talked about yeah. a little bit ago. Okay. So they had to, and at that point in time, they weren't going to have Backlund lose to Hogan. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know, I, I think it would have drew a draw in a crowd, but you know, again, who am I? Mm-hmm. Um, they went with the interim champion again. They grabbed the Iron Sheik who was available. Um, I had heard talk one time that there was even conversation that maybe masked superstar Bill Eady was possibly the guy that they were going to select to get the interim, but they gave it to Sheik, Iron Sheik, and with the understanding that you were going to drop it, you know, like whatever the couple weeks it was or week or it was a short time, drop it to drop (laughs) it to the Hulk, to the Hulk, and there you go. So wrestling is about timing. Yeah. And Backlund at that point had run his course. Yeah. Um, wasn't going to be the picture for the national. And that's where Junior's younger years and his vision that as he saw it mm-hmm. uh, worked. And we bring in Hulk and make it happen. Yeah. Did I answer your question? You did. Yeah. I mean, I like it. You know, you give the good analysis. I really, I really, I know the fans enjoy it. And I tell you this a lot. It is so true. Every time I have you on here, my podcast downloads spike up every time. I uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I, I, I wonder why people would want to listen to me. Because you're factual and you know, your information and you know, your dates. So that's the great part about it. You know, I appreciate it. Thank you all. All right. A couple more questions. I want to talk about a guy that uh, to me was, has been very underrated and underappreciated, and that's Adrian Adonis. To me, I think he was a great worker. Yes, he held some titles and things, but I think he should have been pushed a little bit more uh, to championship caliber. What's your What's your take on that, George? Well, I, I certainly do not disagree with you on the uh, talent, the ability, the character of Adrian Adonis, I thought that he was uh, extremely good. Uh, We can start with, let's compare him when he was with Jesse Ventura. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no one that would disagree with this statement that I'm going to make. Adrian was the one that wrestled on that team. Adrian was the one that took the bumps on that team. Adrian was the worker. And Jesse, he couldn't wrestle. I mean, and I'm not trying to insult him. Jesse was not a wrestler. Jesse was a character. And Jesse didn't take the bumps that Adrian did or could. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse, Jesse made the team good because Jesse had the charisma and the gift of gab, uh, the, the strutting character, and just who he was. So as a team, that was the perfect blend. Yeah. But with Jesse as an individual, um, yeah, I, I think Jesse, or I'm sorry, I think Adrian was extremely good. And we're not talking the later Adrian Adonis when he became the, the adorable one, yeah. blonde, adorable character. We'll touch on that in a second. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to I go with your, your word, uh, your phrase of extremely underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be honest with you, Brian. I always, I always have a problem when someone says to me, so-and-so was underrated. And, and, and here's why. We could say that 90% of the wrestlers were underrated. But a lot of times when people say this, and I'm not directing this at your definition. A lot of people say, well, they were underrated. And when they do that, they think, well, that wrestler should have been the champion or they should have been the key guy in a territory. In order to do that, you had to be the champion. Mm -hmm. That's where that underrated things comes in. Now, we all know that not every wrestler can be the the champion. Right. And to say underrated, um, if Adrian was truly underrated, he would have never been given any of the pushes that he received. Yeah. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. In the AWA, he was he was pushed, in fact, all the way to the title. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the it was the East West connection. Yeah. Even though Jesse was more the character and, and usually more the voice of the team. Yeah. There is no fan out there would tell you that they didn't enjoy the two of them together. And Adrian was, and they'll tell you, Adrian, they believed was the better, the better of the two. Yeah. So he he wasn't underrated in that respect. When he went to the um, WWF at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, he did go in with Jesse for a a very short time before the expansion ever started. Right. But then he went back and he was given the title with Dick Murdoch. Captain now, Redneck. Captain Redneck. <laughs> and you had Murdoch and Adonis. Now, I want to tell you something. I thought that was a heck of a great tag team. Yeah, me too. You had really, you had really on the surface two um, bullies, <laughs> roughnecks, troublemakers, you know, uh, that, that formed this team together. Yeah. And Vince made them. Vince made them champions for a, a time. Yeah. Before they lost it to uh, Atlas and Johnson, Rocky Johnson. Mm-hmm. Who, yes, everybody is the Rock's daddy. <laughs> we got to always include that. Yeah. We? Right. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so Adonis got that push there. Now, here's the thing about Adrian. Adrian, I, I, in fact, somebody just said this on one of the wrestling boards just recently. They said, you know, they thought it was terrible what Vince McMahon did to Adrian Adonis with that adorable character. Mm-hmm. And even though I don't like defending Vince McMahon, in this case, I responded to whoever it was. I said, you know, on the contrary, I don't hold Vince responsible for that. Yeah. Adrian had a choice. He was given the option to adopt this character, take on this persona. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, in the bottom, in the end of things, Adrian had the chance to say, I don't want to do this. Right. This, is, this is not who I want to be. I don't want to be this. He was playing a, a, a feminine character. and You know, yeah. he, he had the ability to say, no, Vince, I don't want to do it. So, I will not blame Vince for that. Right. Vince had an idea. And with, with that, I will add this. With any character that Vince has created over the last three decades now, every wrestler that went into those characters, some of them were stupid. Some of them were silly. Some of them can be, yeah. can be described as degrading. Yeah. But in every case... The wrestler had the ability to say, I don't want to be the red rooster or I don't want to be doink the clown or I don't want to be uh, Skinner. What was Steve Kern's character? Wasn't he supposed to be some Skinner. alligator? Yeah, yeah alligator it was guy. something. There's so many goofy things. Yeah. yeah. But those guys <laughs> took the job. Yeah, they did. Okay. And you can say, well, yeah, they needed the money or they wanted the. The bottom line is they took the job. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I say what happened to Adrian, he took it. He ran with what he had at the time. Yeah. And was he underrated? You know, don't forget, he went down to Texas for a while before this all started. And he was working with uh, Joe Blanchard's group. Right. They had created a world championship down there of their own. Was it Southwest Championship Wrestling? I believe Joe, so. Joe, yeah, yeah. Um, right off the top of my head, you know. Yeah. So, but they created a world title of their own. In yeah. fact, they had him win an elimination match. Yeah. I believe, if I'm not not wrong, I, I think it was against Tully Blanchard. Might have been, but anyway, I, yeah, yeah. I think you're won, right. He won an elimination match yeah. and to make their title supposedly legit, they actually presented Adrian with the title belt that Luthez had held as NWA champion and Luthez presented yeah. it to him. That's, that's right. So that was where the, 
that's where they brought that legitimacy together to yep. their small group at the yep. time, Joe yep. Blanchard's championship wrestling. Um, but Adrian was their champion for yep. a short time. So I don't think he was underrated. I, I think, I think he, th there's a lot that a lot of promoters could have done with him. Yeah. Sadly, by the time when he got to the adorable character, um, yeah, that probably ruined him because, you know, he had put on what he had to have put on close to a hundred pounds. I mean, oh, he, yeah. just, he was, he was a big fellow by then. Yeah. And that was a choice. He made. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he, maybe he put the cat, the nail in his own coffin. I don't know. Yeah. But he wasn't underrated. He was used. He could have maybe been used yeah. better, but I think he was used. He was respected. Maybe underrated was the wrong term. Maybe underappreciated. I mean, in today's, you know, the wrestlers compare, today's wrestlers compare sometimes to the past. You don't hear Adrian Adonis. I, I haven't anyways. Well, you know, you, you hear the Ric Flairs, you hear the Hulks, you hear the Shawn Michaels, you hear the Bret Hart's, all great people. But guys that laid the foundation, some of the foundation for me is like Adrian Adonis. That's my opinion. Well, and you know, the thing is, okay, look, let's go down to the enhancement talent, the jobber category, for example. Sure. Um, if you wanted to be honest, an argument could be made that Kenny J was oh. underrated. Yeah. Okay. Now, now let me just explain this. Kenny J wasn't the greatest wrestler in the world, but Kenny J could wrestle. He could work with whoever he was in the ring with, whether it was mm -hmm. a baby or a heel. Yeah. And he did Yeah. for years. Yeah. And he had a following. He did. Now, now, could you have made Kenny J world champion? No, no one would have bought it. No. But was he underrated? I don't know. Kenny got, Kenny got the push that he got and the respect that he got because he went in mm -hmm. week after week and took a boot to the face and got pinned by whoever he was in the ring. He was good for the business. Here's what I always, here's what I always do. I've never, I, I've only told maybe uh, one or two people this over the years. So you're getting an exclusive right here. All right. I'm excited. Um, I got to give you a little story first. All right. Go for oh, it. Surprise. Surprise. Here goes. Shire again. Um, my late friend, Jim Melvin. Jim and I, in 1969, him and I started what we called our little fantasy wrestling alliance. Mm -hmm. We would take real wrestlers, put them into matches that we would like to see. And we started, it was just between him and I. He promoted Hawaii. I promoted California okay. and we had, we had a Pacific coast champion, which we mutually decided upon. And then we had our individual state champions. He had a Hawaii champ. I had a California champ mm -hmm. and we had mutual tag team champions, Pacific coast. Yeah. Now I say that because we were playing together, just having fun. We had little notebooks, spiral notebooks, and we would, one page per card, we'd promote our cards. And we'd just chat about it. We'd use our own talent. Sometimes we'd share. Jim would say, well, I want to bring in so-and-so. Can I, you know, can I use him? We did this for fun. We were kids, you know, 17 and 19 years old. Yeah. Okay. When we did this for a number of years, and I continued, and I still do it today, not as often, Sometimes when I'm watching TV, I'll grab one of my little spiral notebooks that I'm in and mm -hmm. I'll just promote a couple cards. Yeah. Well, Jim's no longer with us. So mm -hmm. I'm the Pacific Coast now and I'm the boss. Okay. <laughs> but what I do, and here's where I'm coming to answer your question here. What I do is I, I take any wrestler and I, I stay back 1990 and backwards. Right. I don't use any of the modern talent. Mm -hmm. But I take all the guys that were available in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and I promote them in matches and, and different things. 
I envision in my that they are in their prime. Okay. So for example, you could have an Adrian Adonis, and I could I would put him in a match against Joe Pazendak from the 60s. They're both in their respective primes. That's how I promote. Okay. So here's the way, here's the when when you talk about Adrian Adonis. So oftentimes I've looked at if I were going to have the ability to run a wrestling territory, a real wrestling territory, mm-hmm. like any person that would want to do this, there'd be certain guys that if you, if the, if you were able to get them, you'd want them on your cards. Yeah. You'd want them in your territory. You know, back in the day, you'd want to have Dick the Bruiser, mm-hmm. or you might want Fearless Freddie Blassie, or you want Luthez, or... Vern Gagne, whoever it is, the guys that you think would draw your fans in your territory. So when I look at what we talked about, Adrian Adonis, and whether or not he was underrated or not, Adrian Adonis, back in the 80s, if I were going to start a territory, I can honestly tell you that, yeah, Adrian would be one of those guys that I would have said, you know, I'd like him on my cards. I think yeah. I can do stuff with him. I think yeah. I might draw a few people with him. That's the way I look at a territory. Yeah. And the, the way wrestlers are underrated. And the other thing you got to keep in mind is I know it's harder for people to understand this today with our worldwide exposure to everything. Yeah. But back in the day, there legitimately were wrestlers that could draw in one area of the country or in a couple of towns and draw well, but they could go to a different territory across country and they may not be as accepted. A lot of it had to do with uh, authenticity. It it had to do with uh, uh, just the the acceptance of the fans. So Mm -hmm. we could use Bruno San Martino, you could say, would Bruno have been successful as he was if he had went out to California on the West Coast? And could he have been champion for almost eight years and yeah. draw as well as he did? We don't know. No, we don't. Chances are he wouldn't have. Yeah. And on the other hand, take the Crusher. The Crusher was huge for the Midwest. He was the working man's wrestler. He was he was the one that was going to take care of all of the bullies, you know, when he became a, <laughs> a, a baby face. Yeah. Would he have been as as successful in that baby face role on the East Coast? Could he have been WWF champion? Mm, I don't know, yeah. but I don't think so. Yeah. You had a different group of people. Yeah. Where as today, with our world being you know, so global as it is, Mm -hmm. when you went national with wrestling, everybody saw Hulk Hogan. Everybody saw Randy Savage. Mm -hmm. And today everybody sees Roman Reigns and and whatever, whoever all the other clowns are at the circus out there. So (laughs) you notice I'm never polite. I give Vince credit when he's deserving of it, but no, and it's, I, I don't not, I don't knock anybody that loves. No, I, I, know, yeah. I, I never want that to come across. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- they're doing well, they're drawing people, they have fans, they have the support yeah. and God love you for being a wrestling fan. And, yeah. you know, it's just that my cup of tea is a little bit different than yours. Yeah. I'm with you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up from here. I want to thank. I always you. hate when you're saying. I know. I'm sorry, George. Uh, I am. Oh, so no, no, no. It's fun to talk. About it this. is. I really enjoy our conversations. Thank you so much for coming on today and talking about this. Like I said, folks, this is all ad lib. We had no prior. I still have the same thing on my paper. <laughs> I have bumps and thumbs. You just wasted a piece of paper, but that's okay. <laughs> there you go. There's nothing on it, and I know you don't have any notes either. No, I don't. No, it's yep. right blank. Blank, 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 blank. Absolutely ad lib. Yeah. So, George, thank and you so I, and, much. And for I will on. tell folks, I knew nothing of what you were going to ask. No, no, we just that. set no. up a date to do a podcast, and yep. that's how we did it. So this is this is what I this is what I enjoy yeah. doing the best. I know I you. Do. Yeah. So, thanks again, George, for coming on, ladies thank and gentlemen, you. Mr. George Shire. If you're listening, thank you. If you're watching, thank you. 
and please subscribe. And go ahead, George, one more thing. I just want to say, please do listen to our AWA Unleashed podcast. Yes. Chris Tubbs, Mick Karch, and me. Yep. We do a weekly show and yep. we talk only AWA. Yep. And it is fun. Mm-hmm. And I know you'll like it if you love the AWA and tune in. We'd yeah. love to love to have you join us. Yeah, they, it, it is a great, yeah, no problem. It is a great podcast. I listen to it. I watch it. They also have some products online at their channel. So look that up, buy their stuff, buy our stuff. I've got a t-shirt on right here. It'll be at the I'm gonna have to get I'm gonna have to get one of those. And next time I put uh, next time I do your show, I'll I'll wear the, the right. bumps and thumps. All right. Thanks again, everybody, and we will talk to you soon.